This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This episode is brought to you with support from Shutterstock and Lynda.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with industrial designer Hartmut Esslinger about working for Steve Jobs in the early days of Apple and about how creating the design template for Apple or any product line is similar to writing music. You play a certain key, certain harmonies, and then you can repeat it and modify it and play with it. Here's Debbie Millman. In the field of industrial design, Hartmut Esslinger is a legend. Hartmut was born in Germany in 1944 and grew up in the Black Forest. In 1969, the year he graduated from design school, he started an agency with two friends, which later became Frog Design. Hartmut got a lot of attention early on through his work at Vega, the German electronics company. He even got more attention a few years later through his work for Sony, which acquired Vega. And he got the most attention in the early 80s when he designed the Macintosh SE. That design and a few others he's worked on are in the permanent collections of the Whitney Museum and the Museum of Modern Art. Hartmut, welcome to Design Matters. Good morning. Good morning. So Hartmut, is it true that when you were a little boy, whenever you saw a car in the very small village you grew up in, you drew it and filled countless notebooks with sketches of cars, motorcycles, and ships, all of your own design? Yeah, actually, first I copied the ones I saw, which were Volkswagens and some pre-war models. That's true. There were not many cars in the village, actually maybe five or six a day. And I could actually do that in my sleep. So probably during school time, I did it probably 50 times <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> Back when your mom saw the drawings that you did in your sketchbook, she thought that the work that you were doing, this drawing, was a waste of time. And yep. she was worried that it was a warning sign of your eventual future social decline, as you write in your books. And then she burned your sketchbooks and declared that all artists end up in the gutter. Yeah. How did you recover from that? How do you recover I mean, from having your sketchbooks burned by your mom? It was pretty hostile. I mean, I must say... I don't want to get too much into detail, but it was a pretty abusive upbringing, in both physically and, I'm sorry. and emotional. To their benefit, I could say they went for this war. My dad survived Stalingrad by sheer luck. Uh, they were very afraid of discrimination. And, and I think they just wanted me to be a good German. So I think for them, art was just uh, a danger, perceived danger. And I was quite stubborn when, oh, you have to do this, and my, you go to the trade of your parents. I said, no, I will design things. What gave you that courage to be able to pursue what was in your heart as opposed to what your parents or culture or society were telling you that you should do? Growing up in a village is actually a blessing. There were just seven houses, and our teacher, uh, Dr. Hahn, was a real genius about treating kids. So uh, my first four years in my school years were kind of paradise. I could do what I wanted. He said, if your grades are fine, you can do what you want. And I could build boats and have them run on the village pond. And then I also felt I had talent. I mean, I got confirmed in this village by Dr. Hahn. It's great stuff you do. I mean, I could draw everything, you know. I knew that I wanted to do this. 
and nobody would stop me. I knew, just knew that. And funny enough, uh, that's part two of the story. When uh, then I went to the HFG, Hochschule für Gestaltung in Ulm, one of the students at Ulm told me, Hartmut, uh, there's this guy over the hill, Carl Dittert. He's a good guy. I think you will be great for him. And he's just started. He founded the German Asylum Association. He is really a key guy, very very aesthetic, also good teacher. And I went to him. And it already was second week of the semester, so I went, uh, I'm here. He looked at me and said, okay, you're here. That's it. So um, I got myself a, a room in a hotel, uh, just started, arrived at 10 in the morning and started studying at 11. Wow. And then um, on the weekend, I went home to my parents and uh, also my girlfriend back then. I said, okay, I switched schools. And then uh, what is it? I said, it's design. My mother fell over, my dad screwed up, and I didn't talk to them for a couple of years. That was then that. And then I won my awards, and then they showed up for it. But, I mean, that was the end of it. And it was a good end because uh, it had to be like that. And then since then, I'm a happy, happy free man, yeah. Early on in your new book, Design Forward, which is quite brilliant, and the full title is Design Forward, Creative Strategies for Sustainable Change, you state something that seems to me in, in all the research that I've done to be quite a mantra for your whole life. And you state that it is better to be a rebellious outcast than a blindly obedient servant. Yeah. Was that something that you were born with? Did you end up sort of determining this based on some experiences that you had? How did you end up with this as your sort of purpose and mission statement? Yeah, I mean, it's for me, it's the way to live. Even Frog, when I started the company, actually, I started as a student to be to correct us a little bit. I had no money, and I had made my money always with playing music, but then with design, I had no time for music anymore to perform, and then I said I have to make my money with design, so I started my company. And went actually out, and as a student with long hair to the shoulder, I went to Vega, Dieter Motte, great man, and said, uh, your stuff is tired, and uh, but I think if you look at Brion Vega and Braun and other companies, what the Japanese are doing, uh, I want to be your chief designer. Oh, he was lovely. You just you just stated that just 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 say so yeah, you know yeah, this is what that's I want. What is. And then I had on a radio uh, as my pre diploma, and he gave me some tips, and uh, then I went off. And he said, it can be an intern. I said, I only come back as the chief designer. That's all I want to be. Then anyway, so I took his tips, rebuilt my model, and set it to the German design competition, the first one back then, and won the German Federal Design Award, which was a big thing in Berlin, and Dieter Motte also was there. And then I said, he said in this Southern Alemannic language, you cannot translate it, but it basically said, okay, fate made a call, I want to work with you. And uh, then I said, but only as chef, <laughs> as chef of your cuisine. I said, okay, uh, let's do it. And the big thing then was that he gave me a pretty conservative uh, briefing. And uh, I said, we have to do something else. And he said, oh, I know there's trouble. What do we do? I said, okay, I designed something, but at least you have to pay for the models because they will be expensive models. I cannot pay for them. And then... Uh, the model budget for the crazy stuff was about five times the design budget. <laughs> and, but he liked he liked it because he saw the, something coming. 
And then we built this incredible stuff, Space Age Design, which uh, became this huge success. I mean, Vega went from nobody to be number one in communication. We also insisted that it gets a better advertising agency. So, I mean, that got global attention in one shot. So they sold it to Sony and had uh, two clients in one shot. And that actually, I think, was uh, the lucky thing. Then I also uh, asked two people I knew um, to join me. Um, in the first three years, I worked alone. So that was Andreas Haug and, and George Spring? Uh, yeah, George Spring, yeah. And um, then we also got a model maker, uh, Walter Funk, because uh, Paul Hildinger was getting, to, uh, he was retired already, so he couldn't uh, work with me full time. But I mean, it was this, I think what's misunderstood very often about design, it's not with computers and everything. Uh, I still force my students, also in China now, to work with their hands to understand shape, proportion, and relationship to human our human existing. Everything we do is related to us. And um, so, uh, yeah, that's the beginning. Speaking of rebellion, I must say Andreas and George were both pretty conservative. So uh, that was not the easiest time for me. Harmit, uh, you stated in Design Forward, you state that back in 1982, there was no design scene in the U.S. and that everybody was a corporate suck-up. And when it came to design... <laughs> The world was full of idiots. Do you still feel that way? Yeah. I got a lot of (laughs) flack for that. I had a feeling that you were going to say yes. I mean, Arnold Wasserman gave me a hard time once, but then um, we we didn't become friends, but he respected it. I mean, you must understand, I also am sometimes this crazy guy. Sometimes I overstayed a bit, but that was true. I tried to come to America since 1970. I thought America is great. I want to be here. And I went to the Consumer Electronics Show in Chicago and showed my stuff and I want to work here. And then with Sony, I came to America as this foreigner and our stuff was really successful. This profile and uh, Trinitron and Hi-Fi and everything. And then again, I went to companies here and also HP and Texas Instruments and Motorola and nobody wanted it. And they always had these internal guys with a bow tie telling me, yeah, this is different here. I mean, we have VPs, marketing. Always those excuses why it couldn't be great. I mean, there was no nothing shaking up. And then I thought, this is the country of Thomas Jefferson. My God, you know. And it was about this time that you declared that form follows emotion, which is a very, very different sentiment than the prevailing point of view at the time, which was form follows function. Can you talk about why you believe that form follows emotion? I mean, it was an angry response to what I thought the misinterpretation. What was more the German situation? I mean, in Germany, Sullivan was taking an excuse for a boring design. <laughs> and I think the form follows function has just become an excuse for really bad work. I mean, a bit cynical, but that was one part of it. And then the other one was actually um, that many products were just, uh, it's like, it's, I think the nickname is American Main Street. You make a nice street uh, picture, but behind it looks like shit. <laughs> My products always were all the way around. I wanted to work around them, you know. It, um, this first TV, they showed it. Actually, what's funny, there was a TV special. Uh, they showed the TV from behind. They said, what is it? And then they turned around, it was a TV. 
And then uh, the report actually said, was actually like uh, news back then, the, the Daily Show. He said, is that something, if you don't like our program, you turn it around and it's more beautiful from behind. And that was a great advertising. <laughs> so, uh, yes, you want to appeal, uh, you want to be loved. You want to be loved. And I think that's also what really drives my, despite all the rebellion, uh, I want to make things which are being loved. Yeah, I don't want them just to be liked. Uh, I think people want to love things. And Yeah, uh, I agree with you. I th- think people fundamentally want to have a relationship with the things that are in their lives, and they they want things that are going to make a difference in their lives. Um, let's talk about your relationship with Steve Jobs and, and how the two of you changed the world. Um, you started working for Apple in 1982, and back yep. then, it, it seemed that Steve Jobs had what seemed like quite an ambitious plan to make Apple into the greatest global consumer technology brand on the planet. And you write about this in Design Forward, and you state that computers were just beginning to make inroads into professional offices in whom computers were yep. little more than a dream. But that dream was a reality for Steve. He spoke often and confidently about the consumer market. And soon everyone in the company shared his strategic vision of the future of computers. Uh, actually, it was not that smooth. And I, in my, my new book about Apple, I go really to details. I went back to my notes and everything. Uh, people were really, in Apple, kind of irritated by Steve's desire to go world class. And what does it mean? And... You know, uh, when the investors had established a, kind of a management layer, which was pretty conservative. And uh, so Mr. Chief said, I want to be the best of the world. I said, yes, uh, you can be, because I did it a couple of times. And that is what it takes. Uh, actually, what it took was very different from what he expected. Uh, In what way? Each designer reported to an engineering manager. I mean, you don't get anywhere from there. Uh, so Steve will be pretty tough. And on the other hand, uh, looking at the designs of Apple back then, I mean, they were crazy shit, bad designed. $120 for a plastic part. Somebody just took them to the cleaners. That should have been $5, you know. The whole logistical system was still garage. And um, there was a lot of dogmatism. For example, the Apple Free, which was flopping already, uh, was completely wrong design from a thermal and overall point of view. Uh, there was no modularity. It was just a design statement, rendered, build a model, and put to production, and engineers did what they wanted. And I said, see if you need a new management model. And uh, he agreed. So that was a pretty, pretty big thing. And then when it came out, there's a little designer coming from Japan, uh, from Germany via Japan, and... Uh, crazy guy and Steve suddenly is, uh, yeah, that's what we do. I mean, people were shocked. You know, it was was a culture shock. So you developed what is now mythically referred to as the Snow White visual language for everything Apple at that time. Um, Can you describe Snow White and can you talk a little bit about how you developed that visual language? Yeah, it's a long story, Debbie, but I have time. time. In very short words, uh, Steve wanted first to look like Sony. I said, see if that doesn't work. And we had an agreement that we didn't agree. I would come back with something else. <laughs> but we would never compromise. And if he rejected it or I rejected it, we did something else. So sometimes he wanted something. I said, I'd do something else. And 
That was our method from the start. Then we went through a couple of iterations, and finally I thought that Apple has to prepare them for the future, which means flat displays, smaller volumes, ultimately going to the pocket, tablets. Uh, uh, I mean, we were still in this bulky stuff. And then uh, we created kind of this uh, combination of deconstructive shapes, which would be like blocks or elements, I would call them elements, which you could combine in proportionate ways, uh, the Greek model 3 to 4 to 5 and stuff like that. Or the great kind of a rhythm of numbers, which people won't count, but they would feel it. So there's a lot of uh, European tradition about proportionate uh, mathematics in the Apple language, which I think Jonathan Ive still uses very smartly today, intuitively or not, but he is exactly on the wavelength I love to be. And um, so it was not so much how it looked, but also how it felt, how it's made, that it's repeatable, it's scalable. Then basically what I did in the end was create kind of a a model how you could design things with like not a rule book like music you know you play a certain key certain harmonies you have certain uh, motifs like in a symphony and then you can repeat it and modify it and play with it but so you created the sheet always, music <laughs> yeah it's it's uh, a lot of music in it it's uh, no joke uh, you look at uh, Mozart and Beethoven, there's a lot of mathematics in, the, in their music. And that's also the repetitive thing, because if you have repetitive uh, products, the next thing must be new, but also familiar. You know, we don't want new things all the time. We had at the very beginning of the Macintosh, we brought kids to the, to the lab. Uh, I said, children must be able to use it. Then everybody can use it. Then came the stupid argument by Mac and Mac. Yeah, children don't buy computers, but in 25 years, they will buy your computers. Yeah, 25 years. You know, this was a cultural Snow White for Apple. Uh, Steve and I created a cultural revolution in that company, ultimately for the industry. Did you ever disagree? All the time. And? If we did not agree, we made something else. That was a simple rule. And we disagreed a lot. And so we tried a lot of other things. I think that was one of the secrets of uh, going beyond the point where we originally wanted to go to. And um, I think that also was a wonderful method. That's what I learned from him, that never before had worked with anybody who had this kind of creative, open attitude. And um, I mean, everybody who wants to copy Steve Jobs, I mean, nobody can copy his genius, but I think they could really strive for or aspire to is have this openness of, yeah, there's a creative guy. Uh, why shouldn't I not just listen to it or challenge it and also go home without a solution? There's another day tomorrow. You know, that I think was the one of the big secrets why we were successful. You talk um, quite a bit, you write quite a bit in Design Forward about how designers can confront what you call the dilemmas of design. And one of the dilemmas that you talk about and question is whether designers are agents for change or whether they are cultural beautifiers. And so I'm wondering if you can weigh in on that question yourself. What do you think? Are designers agents for change or are they cultural beautifiers? I think we have to change. I give an idea. Uh, I'm not a bit older. And I give advice to some people around the world, not only in design. Uh, 
And uh, one big piece is mobility. And interesting enough, uh, somebody in China asked me, what is the car of the future? And I said, it's not a car. We need to find a different way, but it will start to make it attractive to people so they will like the new, more ecological, meaningful mobility, also without the many people getting killed and, and hurt by it. So it's more attractive than driving around in a car. And I like cars, but I see the problem. And so I think we have to look forward for many decades. What will it do? What what will be the effects be of our thinking today? And I think that's not done enough. So agent of change means not only to change, but to sense a better future and also to simulate it and try out and find out is it really worth to pursue it. Many people don't do enough in imagining it, what it could do. You know, it's not only to make it nice, but what will it do? Uh, one dispute I have with Apple still emotionally is that the stuff is glued together. I would like the iPhone to be screwed together. I can unscrew it like my watch, my Swiss watch, and I can change things inside. I don't want to get a, from iPhone 4 to 5 to throw the old one away. I would like to keep things and just upgrade what I would like to upgrade. Do you think that companies now, the technology companies in particular, are guilty of sort of planned obsolescence or forced obsolescence where the they they are intending for products to only last for a certain amount of time to, to uh, ensure that people will continue to buy their products? Uh, I don't think it's a planned obsolescence. I think it's a collective disaster, what we experience. That's also why I write about cap uh, capitalism. Yes. I think the capitalistic model, the way we pursue it today, is wrong. It's really bad. I think uh, collectively we are on some wrong track. And I think, uh, I hope that some companies, what we did with Steve back then was, a, was also a, a power shift. I hope that you young entrepreneurs understand that we have to build a different economic model which is more based on experiences, on interactions, and not so much on material consumption. And if material consumption is needed, then the stuff which can last 50 years should last 50 years, you know? The stainless steel of my iPhone lasts 1,000 years. So why always take it away? And I think that also brings what you are really good at, the idea of branding. What is the feeling conveyed, the philosophy we bring across? Philosophy means search of wisdom. What is the wisdom we look for? Uh, that we are not only buying stuff in this uh, temple of consumerism, but that we build families, that we build communities, and we educate young people uh, to be fit and uh, create a better future, which brings me back to education. Uh, uh, I take my students to factories to see this uh, avalanche of material to understand it, but also to be fascinated by what we can do to use it smarter. You know, there are robotic factories. They could create 5,000 designs in one day, but what they do, they produce the same boring design every day in and out. So the machines are much smarter than the designers, but the designers rather go to the coffee shop around the corner instead of going to China and uh, or inspire America to rebuild uh, stuff here. It also means politi political activism. So I think there are many, many things uh, we have to do. And uh, I think still we designers, if we have the power to 
move things. I think we are in a very good position to move things. Yeah. You you talk about how creative people can change the world, but they rarely command it. Why do you think that is? Because we also have to get the power. I mean, um, I had a big fight once with a company, so I made a presentation. So uh, then this one board member said, give me one reason, young man, why I should believe your shit. <laughs> exactly like that. And I said, my company makes more profit than yours because they were in Chapter 11. Then it got pale, and the CEO said, sorry, the guy is right. And that got a totally different attitude. And I, I worked with great people, Moretta, I met Jack Welsh, really good people, privileged in my life, I worked with some of the best people in the industry, and they all had really good intentions, you know. But uh, there's also other systems. Uh, I mean, in America, we have a lot of obstacles. Other countries have obstacles. The Japanese is to be conform. In China, it's this uh, whatever. In America, we have this legalistic dictatorship of idiotic legal system. I mean, each country, Germany, is suffering from uh, being comatose against against reform or immune against reform. I mean, French are crazy. Sometimes I feel like a, like a shrink. <laughs> Armin, if, well, as a shrink, in speaking to you in that manner then, what one piece of advice would you give designers today to encourage them to live more purposeful lives and create more purposeful design? I think uh, whatever you do, imagine that you will meet a person and they will tell you that it's a wonderful thing they have and they would like to meet the person who was responsible for it. But they never tell them that you did it. But that's the picture I have. And the rest is professionalism. I mean, I have one principle which my music teacher told me, always show up, no matter what. You also write in Design Forward a wonderful line that I've been thinking quite a lot about this past week. You say... Design can't change the world. Designers can change the world. So thank you for helping change our world, Harvard Esslinger. I really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you very much, Debbie. To learn more about Harmit Esslinger and to see some pretty impressive vintage electronics, go to frogdesign.com. I'd like to thank you for listening, and I'd also like to dedicate this podcast to a great thinker who was taken from us too soon, Lauren Delvecchio Zaluski, my dear student at the School of Visual Arts in New York, you will be missed. Remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. This episode is supported in part by Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials. With Lynda.com, you can learn software, creative, and business skills to achieve your personal and professional goals. Try it free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash design observer. That's Lynda.com spelled with a Y, not an I. Lynda.com slash design observer. Support is also provided by Shutterstock, home of over 25 million stock photos, vectors, illustrations, and video clips. If you are looking for images for your website, blog, app, or print project, Shutterstock makes it easy. 
Visit Shutterstock.com to get 30% off any package with offer code DESIGN30. That's DESIGN30 for 30% off at Shutterstock.com. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.